just tune into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 243 with Jack Hickey. And Jack dives into issues with traditional rehab and reducing injury risk when it comes to hamstrings. So what are the problems with traditional, ham traditional hamstring rehabs? How can we make that different? And what exercises can we introduce with this new way of rehab that we potentially wouldn't have been able to do before? But just before we do dive into this episode with Jack, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect, analyze, visualize, and present data to coaches, check out AMS Lite at rockdaisy.com. In terms of traditional hamstring injury rehab, <clears throat> I know it's something you've talked about previously. You just want to talk to a little bit about what that maybe looks like and potentially the issues that arise off the back of what we might say traditional. Yeah, for sure. And and again, it's a it's that one of we talk about it, and and I'm cognizant of it myself when even you know writing a paper or, or presenting or talking about it. And you know we look at, at research and we see or clinical recommendations for for hamstring injury rehab, and we say, okay, well this is conventional practice, or this is what the the clinical guidelines recommend. And that doesn't necessarily mean today in 2019, that's what, you know, good practitioners at elite clubs or even, you know, good practitioners in, in private practice are doing from a rehab point of view, because, you know, hopefully they're, they're up to date with recent research and they're seeing these uh, things come out and perhaps, you know, challenging those conventional guidelines a little bit. But in terms of when we say traditional rehab, I suppose we're talking about the typical sort of, I suppose, I often use the term, the more medical approach to, to rehabilitation in that, um, yes, we have an injury and we need to allow that injury to, to heal. Um, in terms of the pathophysiology, we've got to allow it to go through uh, certain timeframes for healing. And then the way that we load that tissue throughout that period um, is often dictated um traditionally was dictated probably by time and I think over the past uh, I'd say five to ten years um, there's certainly been a shift from the more uh, it's been termed sort of time-based rehabilitation more to the criteria-based rehabilitation um, which allows for a much more individualized approach um, to particularly acute muscle injury management where you have injuries of different severities and different athletes who respond differently so I think that has certainly improved. The thing that I suppose we identified, um, and this was sort of part of uh, my PhD studies, um, we sort of wanted to look at, well, how, if we were implementing criteria-based rehab, how do we go about making the decision to progress through different stages of rehabilitation and, and what are those criteria for progression? And the thing for us that, that kept coming up was this thing about pain and that, pain avoidance or being pain-free on different tests or just being pain-free when performing exercise was the most common, uh, I guess, guideline that, that kept popping up uh, in the research. And, you know, that that was a, a theme that we identified throughout a systematic review that we did on the topic um, and, yeah, found that it was the, the pain-free performance of exercise was the thing that then dictated whether we then progressed on to make an exercise harder and more challenging. Um when you look back at that and where that came from, you sort of have to dig a little bit and it's sort of, it's one of those things that's, we've always done it because it makes sense. It's, it's common sense to say, well, if something hurts, we're going to make it, you know, easier to the point where it doesn't hurt and I can perform it without pain. And that's something that, you know, I've previously done clinically many, many times 
and in certain situations, you know, potentially would, would still do. But um, if you actually take a, an objective look at it, there's actually never been any uh, research from an acute muscle injury point of view to directly challenge whether we actually need to be completely pain-free following an acute muscle injury and perhaps whether we allow uh, some level of pain during exercise, do we have any additional benefits um, in terms of the amount of exercise we can do or how quickly we can progress through rehab. So from a traditional point of view, I suppose um, when we talk about that, it's generally speaking the the avoidance of pain and probably being fairly conservative in our in our loading and when i say conservative in loading that's looking specifically at loading the injured hamstring muscle um and i think probably the two key areas of hamstring injury rehab whether the hamstring is placed under stress is clearly during hamstring strength training uh, but also during the progression of running and the progression towards high speed running are probably the two key uh, elements there so what's the alternative so I, I mean i guess it's human nature if something hurts don't do it so in terms of educating the athlete into that how how is what's the alternative to if it hurts let's stop yeah look i think and, and when we we looked at that we sort of um the first thing was identifying well clearly if that's the barrier to progression of rehabilitation and exercise as you mentioned, we've got to consider what's the alternative. And, you know, that's where we sort of turn to research in, in other areas or just clinical practice in, in other areas of, um, you know, sports and musculoskeletal injury rehabilitation. And the concept of uh, pain monitoring and pain education during exercise, it's not something that's new. And we don't for a minute claim that we've come up with it or that it's something that, that we developed because, you know, if you look at the, the research, I mean, as far back as 1997, which, I mean, I'm, not, I'm 30 years old now, but I was only, what, eight years old then in 1997, so it's a while ago now. Um, so there was a, a Swedish group that, um, you know, basically came out with this pain monitoring model and applied that to female athletes with patellofemoral joint pain and, you know, showed that it, it wasn't detrimental to exercise uh, to a level of pain that in that pain monitoring model, they allow the continuation of exercise up to five out of 10 on a zero to 10 numeric pain rating scale. And I mean, that pain monitoring model was then adopted by like Karen Silbernagel and, and her colleagues with Achilles tendinopathy. I think that was around 2001. Um, and then we've seen that pain monitoring model or variants of that used throughout musculoskeletal rehabilitation literature and certainly in clinical practice with more chronic or more overuse or it's termed overuse type injuries. So, uh, you know, things like patellofemoral joint pain, Achilles tendinopathy, um, even there's some work in uh, post-surgical um, post interventions, so post-knee arthroplasty, uh, some work allowing pain during exercise. And we sort of thought, well, okay, that, that's been applied with, you know, relative safety in, in those populations and in some cases some, some better outcomes. Um, what about acute muscle injury rehabilitation? And it, it probably hadn't really been um, implemented in a, in a trial before. Um, there's certainly reports in the literature and, and I'm sure if you talk to practitioners, some people will say, yeah, well, I've prescribed ex exercise up to pain before. And so we don't, again, claim that it's something completely new. But I think what, what we then proposed was a, a sort of a variant of the pain monitoring model and we just termed it pain threshold rehabilitation and, and really allowed a, a group of athletes to perform uh, exercise rehabilitation up to a, a limit of pain and we used four out of 10 as our limit 
Now, whether you have a, an arbitrary cutoff such as that or not is probably up for debate, but um, we really just used four out of 10 and we looked at the the, the Tommy Payne monitoring model. It was the, the Swedish researcher who came up with that. And we thought, well, five out of 10, it's acute muscle injury. Let's be slightly more conservative and we'll go four out of 10. Um, and yeah, we implemented that as part of a, a randomized controlled trial. So um, I think the thing that uh, that our group was able to do with that is, I suppose, directly ask the question, what is the effect of allowing exercise up to a pain threshold of four out of 10 compared to the conventional practice of remaining completely pain-free or avoiding pain during the performance of exercise rehabilitation, but get those athletes to perform the exact same exercises and the same uh, progression, except for the fact that one group was allowed to do it with within pain-free limits and one was allowed to do it within pain threshold limits. So what was the outcome of that? Yeah, so I mean, the outcomes of that study and um, – that study has uh, now just been accepted for, for publication in uh, the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, which we're uh, really happy about and, and certainly very relieved. It's a, a long process, the peer review process. And um, yeah, we've been very fortunate or I've certainly been very fortunate to be able to present some of that work at conferences um, around the place sort of over the last couple of years because we, we actually did finish um, you know, the data collection for that sort of the end of two thousand and. and uh, 17. Um, so this is what I mean about research does take time in terms of its um, yeah. you know, ability to get out there. And one of the beauties of, um, I suppose, the, the, the current age of social media and, um, you know, conferences and, and things like that is that we were able to present that work, um, you know, even in preliminary form sort of early days. Um, and it got some traction and, you know, I was you know, very taken aback at the response that it got um, from a lot of people, which was, was really nice. Um, and, you know, then going through the peer review process and it's at times a, a tough one and it, you know, can leave you a bit disheartened at times, but at the end of the day, it improves the quality of your, your manuscript and it, um, you know, makes sure that the findings are really robust. So hopefully that that's, uh, will be online soon and available, um, you know, for everyone to view. But in terms of the findings for people unfamiliar with the work, I suppose the, the key take home was that allowing pain threshold exercise wasn't detrimental. Um, as probably point number one. So we didn't see, um, you know, any um, drastic effects as far as, you know, causing re-injuries or, you know, guys weren't pulling up super sore or anything like that from allowing pain during exercise. Um, I suppose then when we compared the two two groups as far as the main outcome people care about in terms of um, getting back to sport or return to play clearance, um, for us, in terms of an outcome, we looked at return to play clearance time, so meeting objective and subjective criteria um, for us to say, okay, you can now go back to full training. There was no difference between the two groups as far as that outcome goes. So certainly that pain threshold approach didn't accelerate the actual, um, what would be termed clinical recovery, I suppose. But what we did see with the pain threshold uh, group was um, some greater improvements in terms of knee flexor strength. Um, and we also saw some uh, more longer-term adaptations or longer-term improvements is probably a better word uh, in terms of some architectural improvements. So as part of the study, uh, we looked at biceps femoris long head fascicle length, which um, for those familiar with the research will know that it's a, a modifiable risk factor for hamstring strain injury, just, just one of one of many risk factors, but certainly a relatively potent one. 
um, and those pain threshold guys saw a greater improvement or a more uh, sustained improvement, I should say, at a follow-up time point in that outcome measure. So long story short, the, the differences between the groups are quite minor, but I think the exciting thing is that we were able to show that by allowing exercise to be performed up to a pain threshold, it wasn't detrimental. And what it did allow us to do was perform certain exercises throughout rehabilitation uh, earlier than probably what is conventionally thought to be, um, I suppose, safe. Um, and, you know, we found that it was completely safe and we're able to expose expose athletes to, um, you know, relatively high intensity loading fairly early in rehabilitation to probably an extent that we were even surprised with at the time um, when we were doing it. And that just means in a short time frame, if you've got an athlete with a relatively minor hamstring strain injury who may be in rehab for even two weeks or even if it's three weeks, if you think about especially those working in private practice, you may see that client or that athlete uh, you know, two or three times throughout that period. And so you really want to be progressing them as quickly as you can and getting as much load into them as they can before they go back to sport. Um, and I think that's the really exciting thing with that pain threshold approach. It, it does allow us to do that. So what, what were the exercises that we, you were able to introduce earlier than what may have been traditionally accepted? Yeah, so, I mean, we put together a, a rehab protocol that we'd like to think is, is relatively straightforward and hopefully easy to follow for people. And, you know, um, again, when that, that paper becomes available, um, people will be able to see that. And um, hopefully we like to think one of the strengths is it's relatively implementable um, in most most environments. Um, in terms of the exercises, we basically, we took a fairly focused approach towards um, hamstring strengthening and, and certainly with an emphasis on developing eccentric knee flexor strength, also hip extension strength, um, and also really targeting biceps femoris long head adaptations. So the exercises will be selected with somewhat informed by, you know, some of our group's work um, in terms of Matt Bourne's uh, PhD work where he showed that not only the Nordic hamstring exercise but also uh, the 45-degree hip extension exercise are both really beneficial for eccentric strength and biceps fem fascicle, uh, long head fascicle uh, adaptations. Uh, so basically what we did is we implemented – three exercises from the get-go in rehabilitation. And I think one of the important things to probably note and that might get misinterpreted by some people when reading this work, as I said, the difference between the pain-free and the pain threshold group wasn't that great. And part of that we feel is because the rehab protocol implemented or the exercises implemented were the same across the whole cohort. So regardless of what group uh, participants were randomly allocated to, in their first rehabilitation session, they all attempted bilateral variations of three exercises. So they did a, a hamstring bridge, so like a 45-degree hip and knee uh, hamstring bridge. Uh, they did a 45-degree bilateral hip extension on like a Roman chair. Uh, and they attempted a bilateral eccentric sliding leg curl. So um, if you've never seen that exercise, it's effectively like performing a glute bridge. And then when you're up in the glute bridge, you've got your heels on something that's going to slide away from you and you maintain hip extension and your knees go slowly into extension and you're using your knee flexors to eccentrically uh, try to decelerate that movement as, as best you can. So we actually just exposed all of our athletes or all of our injured individuals to those three exercises from the get-go in rehab. And then it was within their either pain-free or pain threshold limits that were allowed to continue and even progress those exercises on a on an individual basis 
um, which wasn't sort of determined by um, predetermined criteria in terms of passing a certain clinical test or a certain time frame from injury. We actually just took what we think is a pretty straightforward approach of saying, if we want to know when an athlete can progress an exercise, well, let's see if they can do a low level version of that exercise. And if they can tolerate that, we'll increase the intensity, we'll increase their rep range, and we'll push them a little bit harder to the point where it exceeds their limits, and then we bring them back a little bit. Um, and so those three exercises are performed from the start. Each of those bilateral exercises, when the athlete can perform the uh, prescribed repetition range through full range of motion within their allocated group's uh, pain limit, that will then progress to a unilateral variation, so a single leg hamstring bridge, a single leg hip extension and a single leg slider, which is certainly a much more challenging eccentric knee flexor movement. Um, and at the time point when they progressed from the bilateral slider to the single leg slider, they were also exposed to the, the Nordic hamstring exercise at that point. So they were basically the, the strength exercises we had in the rehabilitation. And then there was also a running component uh, to our rehabilitation where we used a very simple um sort of shuttle running uh, model and progressive running model, which is based on the work of uh, Amy Silda and her colleagues, where they uh, implemented that as part of a, a randomized control trial back in 2013. Um, we implemented that pretty much that same protocol, just with some modifications uh, to the distances covered, which was really, to be honest, largely limited by the, the space we have available uh, here in Metro Melbourne. Um, and we were not blessed to have a, a running track or anything like that here at ACU in Melbourne, unfortunately, but we do have a 50-metre laneway down between two of the buildings, so uh, that was where we did our running. Um, but basically that was, you know, acceleration, um, hold, deceleration, um, starting at a walk, jog, walk, and then progressing um, through to a, you know, jog, run, jog, and then a run, sprint, run, so relatively straightforward and basic sort of stuff. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So as I mentioned, this clip came from episode number 243 with Jack Hickey, and that can be found on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today, and look forward to chatting to you soon.